The uh, subcommittee will come to order. Next uh, witness is uh, Martin Kelly, his son who was uh, killed in Vietnam in 1968. Uh, I did lose his son in 1968. His name was Daniel Kelly. He's a member of the 1st Cavalry Airmobile, killed in the Ashaw Valley, and as of this moment is still in the Ashaw Valley. Now the purpose of this committee, or subcommittee, was to decide whether or not we would grant a blanket total amnesty. I would suggest, number one, this committee would be better engaged in suggesting and designing a memorial to the over 50,000 military men who died believing in this country's cause. Men are being wounded now in, in Vietnam. They're being killed in Vietnam. And we sit here with stinking empty platitudes, great philosophical flights. I would suggest perhaps that these discourses on philosophy might better be held in an upholded outhouse, not here. It is difficult for me to stand and look and know why someone would suggest total bl blanket amnesty. I have not suggested that I am against the proposal that Senator Hart mentioned some time ago, which was conditional amnesty. But I do not feel that this amnesty, conditional amnesty, should be held, suggested, or put into effect until every American man has left Vietnam. And it is my thought, and it is my suggestion, that every American military man in Vietnam should leave tomorrow because they cannot win. This government will not let them win. When I hear the empty phrases of a Fulbright, of a Mr. McGovern, with a turnabout of yourself, Mr. Chairman, when for three years John F. Kennedy stood in the White House, John F. Kennedy, who talked about bearing any burden, paying any sacrifice, this led men to join the army, to accept the draft, and to fight for their country. And now with a very casual statement, while we were wrong, these draft dodgers are right. That's all I have to say. Well, Mr. Kelly, you've given us a very powerful uh, testimony this morning. And I know that uh, you speak your heart and you speak with great uh, concern. Obviously, given this a great deal of uh, thought, and there are many Americans who, who share that, that view. I would like to submit that my experience with the son we lost and with his brothers and their friends is that we as parents have not been able to give them adequate reasons for dying or for killing other human beings. Mr. and Mrs. Robert Ransom, Gold Star Parents. We are very uncertain of the justice of our cause. And in fact, we have come reluctantly to the view that our son's death served no useful purpose for his country. However, 
The fact that we have come to our bleak conclusion does not mean that we shall ever underestimate the courage and the dedication of the young men who have died. If it were not for their participation, many more of their fellow Americans would not be alive today, and their medal citations certainly give ample testimony to this. I plead with you not to underestimate that it may have taken another kind of courage to go into exile or to jail. It is not easy to go against the tide of public opinion in support of conscience. Surely, to offer amnesty to all these young men could not possibly jeopardize the safety of the state. In fact, it would enhance it, since so many of them are deeply committed to social justice. Perhaps it would be very hard for us to say that what these men did in their various ways was right, but neither do I believe that we can say that they were wrong. If I were granted the power to influence this committee's thinking on only one very narrow point, it would be this. I would like to be able to dispel forever that popular and prevalent misconception that it would dishonor the nearly 56,000 Americans who died in Vietnam to grant amnesty now to those many of our children who have opposed participation in the war. The untenable position into which we forced these young men is responsible for their predicament today. They are our sons and we need them back. They did not deserve what we've done to them. It would be most gratifying to me if I felt that I could have contributed in any small measure toward the granting of the broadest kind of general amnesty, one without penalties and conditions. I would consider it to be my personal Mike Ransom Memorial General Amnesty Bill, and that would have pleased him. Thank you. This hearing room in the new Senate office building has been described as a room of pain. For three days this year, February 28th, 29th, and March 1st, veterans, parents of the dead, civic leaders, and government officials wrestled with the problem of whether or not amnesty, that is, forgiveness for violating the draft and military desertion laws, should be given to war resistors. Why is this emotionally charged issue being discussed now while the war is still on? Who wants it? Who opposes it? Will it bring the country together, or will it merely divide us further? Can they, can you, can we go home again? The Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Administrative Practice and Procedure is in session searching for administrative ways in which the amnesty question can be handled. Most of the business was conducted by the chairman of the subcommittee, Senator Edward Kennedy. These are the highlights of the three days of hearings. Amnesty, for many, is a new word in our political vocabulary. The word itself is Greek. It means forgetfulness. And it was the Greeks who granted the first recorded amnesty in 403 B.C. Since then, the world has a history of amnesty, and so do we. With the exception of World War I, amnesty has been granted in one form or another in every conflict. It was George Washington who established the precedent of generosity, John Adams and Andrew Jackson, when they were in office, followed his example. In the course of his almost hour-long testimony on the history of amnesty, one of America's outstanding scholars, Professor Henry Steele Commager, said this. It is a civil war which provides us with the best analogies and I think the best models for our own time. Desertion from both Union and Confederate armies ran roughly around 10%, rather above than below that figure. Draft evasion was widespread and flagrant. What is illuminating, however, is the attitude of Presidents Lincoln and Johnson towards Southerners, 
who had engaged in rebellion and were technically guilty of treason. Lincoln's position was clear and consistent. During the war, he issued a series of amnesty proclamations designed to bring Confederates back into allegiance and to get government in operation in the South. Who can doubt now that Lincoln's policy of magnanimity was wiser and more far-sighted than the radical policy of punishment? Even the radicals were not vindictive by modern standards. How gratifying it is, after all, for Americans to recall that the United States put down the greatest of rebellions in the 19th century without imposing on the guilty any formal punishment. What other great nation, challenged by rebellion, can show so proud a record? Not England in the 17th century, not France in the 18th, not Spain or Russia or China or Cuba or any other in the 20th. A clear majority of Americans oppose unconditional amnesty. But an even larger majority would favor amnesty if, in exchange, the young men were required to work in national service, such as in hospitals or VISTA, for two or three years. These are the findings of a Gallup poll recently made for Newsweek magazine. And this desire for conditional amnesty for draft dodgers, no amnesty for deserters, is what the bills proposed in the Senate by Robert Taft, conservative Republican of Ohio, and in the House by liberal Democrat Edward Koch of New York, would provide. A bill by Congresswoman Bella Obzug would include deserters. Other measures are expected. Senator Taft discusses his bill. I do believe that the national interest calls for some steps to bring us together. In this regard, I have introduced into the Congress a measure which provides an opportunity for those who are in the draft resistor status in violation of the draft laws to earn amnesty by agreeing to three years of service, either in the armed services or in the alternative in other federal service designated by the Attorney General. By that time that three-year period is up, I feel that the war will be long behind us. I feel the prisoner of war question hopefully will have been resolved uh, by getting the men home. If not, I question whether further steps would be desirable or necessary. But I do think that we ought to, at the present time, face up to the problem of the prisoners of war, problem also of our draft resistors, and to take steps to provide a means, at least, whereby those who want to rejoin America can earn their way to rejoining the country. What do the exiles and prisoners for whom this amnesty is proposed say? What is their position? Since they could not testify here, immediately prior to these sessions, we went to where the exiles and prisoners are, the Federal Reformatory in Petersburg, Virginia. Here, we were permitted to film and speak with the men who are sentenced to from two to three years for evading the draft or in other ways resisting the war. We, we stood out and spoke up when nobody else would and finally turned this country around and get away from this, this immoral war. So really we feel that we have suffered enough and we, we deserve amnesty. Uh, I, I'm in favor of a amnesty where no strings are attached, uh, no loopholes, this type thing. Of course the POWs in North Vietnam have conditions that are much brutal than those of us here at Petersburg. There's really not a whole lot of difference between the reasons we're behind bars, except that they're in prison for dropping bombs on people, and we're in prison for the non-crime of refusing to participate in the killing. We are in Toronto, but it could be any Canadian city, for Canada has the largest number of exiles, believed to be about 60,000. 
War resistors are welcomed here, as they were in our country, when we gave asylum to hundreds of thousands of deserters fleeing from the European armies. Most try to integrate into the social work of their adopted country. Others go to school to complete their education and are active in the anti-war movement. Such a man is Jack Colon, a descendant of the Mayflower settlers. The beauty of the Canadian farms has claimed a few. Tim, at 20, felt he couldn't fight in any war. His parents, with an older son in Vietnam, brought him here. There are those who have settled in with their families. Terry, a former Marine, deserted after he was wounded twice. He is looking forward to his eventual Canadian citizenship. Alan is a student. He would like to go home if he could without too much difficulty and if the penalties weren't severe. Most typical of the angry draft evader is D. Knight, often a spokesman for the war resistors in exile. He is a textile worker, a labor organizer, and editor of Amex, a magazine dedicated to explaining the position of these political exiles. I, I don't want to be used as a political football by Senator Taft or Congressman Koch or anybody else who wants to separate me from my brothers, military deserters, my brothers, the guys who are still in jail because of war resistance, my sisters and brothers who are underground in the States because of their, their actions in an effort to end this war. All of us are innocent. The only thing that's clear is that American society now has the chance to act in terms of this innocence and begin to change the situation in which the guilty continue to rule and the innocent have to be underground, in jail, or abroad. This is what it's all about. How do those who fought feel about amnesty for those who refuse to fight? Everett Carson. Marine platoon commander. You served uh, in uh, Vietnam and received medals, the Bronze Star and the Navy Achievement Medal, and Vietnam Service uh, Ribbon, the Purple Heart, and a couple of others. That... How do you uh, react to the fact that while you were over there suffering, losing your buddies, other people were leaving the country? Um, how do you react? Aren't you bothered by that, that they ought to be able to get away with, uh, effectively with some kind of amnesty? I think, undeniably, some of us realized much sooner than others what the war in Vietnam was all about. To reduce the, the debate and the, and, the, and the discussion of amnesty to, to one of, of bitterness and vindictiveness and, and to deny the reuniting of, of a nation of a whole would only be to extend the suffering that we have seen in, in Vietnam and the suffering that we see in the ghettos and, and, and everywhere here at home. And I think that it's extremely difficult for a Vietnam veteran who has gone and then come home and who once believed in what he was fighting for to have that belief devastated when he sees what it's doing to both Indochina and to the United States. Well, there are those that say that uh, the people that have left are law violators, law breakers, evaders, and even cowards. And how do you react to that? I react by saying that the law which they violated was one that, that never, ever should have been made. And that, that the policy in Southeast Asia, as I think most of us are more than ready to admit right now, is also a policy which never should have been made. And that for a person to refuse complicity 
in that crime against humanity is an admirable feat for him to have accomplished and certainly not a feat which he should be punished for. James Kearns, Special Forces, Vietnam, spokesman for the Vietnam Veterans for a Just Peace. Uh, I find it very difficult to understand how a war that was moral six years ago and people like yourself that told us that to defend Southeast Asia was defending the world against communism and that this was our heritage and our destiny to six years later say something entirely different. Now I don't question your right to say that, Senator, and I don't question your, your beliefs. I'm sure. saying this is all very confusing. And I think possibly this confusion has led to the reason that we have 70,000 people that have left this country sure. because they are truly confused. Sure. And I was confused in Vietnam when I heard your voice over Radio Hanoi. Now I know certainly that you didn't intend for Radio Hanoi, but I think that we have to be aware of what we say that uh, these things are being twisted. You're not uh, meaning to suggest that uh, uh, we shouldn't uh, change our, or express our, our views about uh, something that we see as a mistake, are you? No, Senator, I'm not. I right. think you're very much entitled to uh, express your views as a senator and as an American. Sure. I, however, feel that this amnesty issue is something entirely different. Uh, we're talking about giving their freedom to someone that turned their back on the country. I believe, I feel, our group feels that we're talking about a different issue. We feel that sometime in history, in our tradition of amnesty, that there is a place for amnesty. Where is it? But that? not while we're fighting a war. Mrs. Valerie Kushner, she and her flight surgeon husband have two children. For I come to you as the wife of a man who voluntarily enlisted in the Army in 1966, who in 1967 chose to serve in Vietnam, and who has spent the last four years as a prisoner of war there. But there is something to be said for the platitude which insists that the best teacher of compassion is personal grief. The Americans who have been imprisoned by the enemy in Indochina, the draft dodgers and deserters, share certain areas in common. Most noticeably, they are all unwilling exiles. The refugees wish, as does my husband, the soonest possible return to the land which nurtured them, the memories of which sustain them in their exile. I have heard it said, again today in this room, that no amnesty can be given until the prisoners of war have been repatriated. I agree that neither will come to pass until first this terrible war has ended. But just as the Pentagon has formulated contingency plans for the return of the POWs, Congress must give thought to preparing the structure by which amnesty will be granted. It would be terrible indeed if one of our, the return of one young man was delayed because of bureaucratic unpreparedness. I can only hope that such a plan will not be one which seeks punishment or retribution, but has as its guide compassion. The question before this committee and this Congress should be not whether or not the young men who departed from the majority have betrayed America, but rather in all humility, we must ask ourselves, will America, by refusing amnesty, betray itself? Testifying for his 2,700,000 members, the American Legion's National Commander, John H. Geiger.
the American Legion's position on amnesty is. One, we oppose any attempt to grant amnesty now. Two, after the conflict ends, peace is established and our prisoners of war and missing in action have been repatriated or accounted for. Each case should be reviewed under existing procedures available to the courts and the president. How can amnesty be explained to parents, wives, children, all those who have lost a son, husband, or a father in their country's service? How can we excuse ourselves to the prisoners of war, the missing in action, or to their suffering families for offering amnesty? The question is, what is the stand of the Department of Defense on amnesty? Melvin Laird, Secretary of Defense, addressing the veterans of foreign wars, March 6, 1972. This is not the time for a consideration of that question. We are in a position where men are fighting and dying in Vietnam. We are in a position where the enemy holds prisoners of war and those missing in action, which have been asked to make this supreme sacrifice on the part of the United States of America. We have been continuing to require the use of the selective service system during this year, although we will be below 50,000. This is not the time for a consideration of the amnesty question. I realize full well that the question always has been addressed and considered at the close of all major conflicts that this country has been in, and that this country has a long history of justice tempered by mercy. But certainly, ladies and gentlemen, now is not the time for that question to be addressed by our government. In this cross-section of opinion and emotion, it must be evident that the story of amnesty now is the story of reconciliation now. What will bring Mr. Kelly and the Ransoms together? Parents who have each lost so much, yet view their loss so differently. What will bring veterans Carson and Kearns together? It would appear that those who favored the war are opposed to amnesty now, and those who oppose the war are generally in favor of amnesty, complete for all now. Perhaps we cannot put such divisions behind us until we put the war behind us, finally and completely. But as we struggle out of this nightmare, are we to be guided by a wish for reconciliation or revenge? We know what the answer must be. We know what eventually it will be. Amnesty now can mean a beginning toward reconciliation, a rejection of revenge. Is it not time, therefore, for America to welcome home all her sons? This is Frank Reynolds in Washington. Good night. Can you go home again? The story of amnesty has been brought to you by America's business insurance specialists, Employers Insurance of Warsaw. For any kind of business insurance, come to the source.